Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Happy holidays from Tax Notes. For the end of the year, we've recorded a few short items that are either weird or or just didn't work as a full episode. So as our gift to you, we present to you Year-End Collection, Volume 2. I'm joined in the studio now by Tax Notes Today senior legal reporter Stephanie Cummings. Stephanie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. What do you have for me? Okay, so I'm here today to talk about entertainment meals, which is a new concept brought on by the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So basically prior to the TCJA, as I'll call it, business meals and entertainment were both 50% deductible. So people didn't really care about the difference between entertainment and business meals. Mm -hmm. But then after the TCJA, the entertainment deduction was repealed and – It seemed to be that the intent of Congress, which we're always trying to divine, was that business meals would continue to be deductible, but entertainment wouldn't be. But if a business meal was an entertainment meal, then that wasn't deductible. So are we talking like dinner theater? What what is an entertainment meal? Right, exactly. This is the question everybody was asking. So the definition of entertainment before the TCJA was pretty unclear. There are these very old regulations that talk about like cocktail lounges and supper money and like terms we don't really use anymore. And they hadn't really been updated. There's also a reference to expenses that are lavish and extravagant. But nobody really knew what that meant that had never been defined. Like you were never able to deduct a business meal that was considered lavish and extravagant. But people I talked to said they had never heard of a deduction being denied as lavish and extravagant. So, But now they were worried, okay, will that take on new meaning now that we have to worry about whether or not something is an entertainment meal? So there was a lot of talk about, it seemed like wine was a big concern for people. Like if you spend, you know, $50,000 on a bottle of wine, that certainly sounds lavish or entertaining, but is a $200 bottle of wine like an entertainment expense? Or if you're going to like a Benihana and there's a show happening right right in front of you, is that entertainment or is it just food? Right. So basically no one knew and they were just posing a lot of questions and there, there weren't a lot of answers. But this is an area where the IRS did come out and officially give us an answer. So in October, they issued a notice that basically said, okay, business meals are going to continue to be deductible and there are there are certain requirements you have to meet. But the important thing is that you have to substantiate it. You have to sort of say, okay, we went to a basketball game, we got a skybox, and there was food there. But here in the bill, here's the separate billing for the food. And then here's the bill for the skybox and the basketball tickets and all that kind of thing. So you're going to have to – and in the past, nobody had to do that because everything was 50 percent deductible. So you didn't have to worry about separating stuff out. So there is some concern, particularly this year, about how are you going to separate those things if you weren't trying to before. Now, if you went to, let's say, a Wizards game, could you argue the game was not entertaining? You could certainly try. I think you can try to argue anything. I don't know that the IRS would buy it, and they do seem in particular concerned about Skybox meals. I covered, a, I think, a Treasury official recently who said, you know, if in the past you were sending in receipts that said, like, oh, the Skybox costs $1,000 and the hot dogs cost $50, but now you're turning in the same sort of receipt that says, well, the Skybox is only $50, but the hot dogs were $1,000, that's going to raise some flags for them. (laughs) 
But anyway, they do seem to be, they're supposed to be working on regulations on this. And I think they are going to revisit that issue of, okay, well, what is entertainment? Because nobody really seems to know. We'll definitely have to keep an eye on it. Thank you for being here. Thanks. Joining us now by phone is State Tax Today senior reporter Paul Jones. Paul, what do you have for us? Well, we have sort of an interesting story, and this is from early in 2018, but uh, Wesley Elmore with Tax Notes Today was attending a meeting uh, in which a California official discussed how the state has to uh, collect tax payments in cash from marijuana businesses. Obviously, California has legal recreational pot, and it is subject to sales taxes and excise taxes. But because of the federal prohibition on pot, most banks won't do business with pot sellers, so the industry has to work in cash, and that means that tax agencies have to collect tax payments from a lot of pot sellers in cash. And what was uh, discussed at this meeting in Los Angeles, uh, the comments that were made by Selby Stanislaus, the executive director of the Franchise Tax Board, uh, essentially she stated that the system that they were using at time involved state tax officials with the Franchise Tax Board and the California Department of Tax and Fee Administration meeting up with pot sellers at a bank. Their partner in this case was Bank of America and actually having the uh, cash payment be made to bank employees who would count it and deposit it and then credit that payment against the taxpayer's tax liability to the state. So it's sort of an interesting look at how because of the, the difference between the state laws allowing these pot businesses to operate and the federal prohibition and the, the lack of access to banking services, what you now have are these uh, tax agencies having to sort of get back into a time machine and go back to a pre-check and electronic payment era and figuring out how to handle all this cash. I'm just imagining this, uh, people showing up with those old-timey canvas bags with dollar signs on them. Yeah, and from the conversations I've had with sources, because I've been covering this issue for a while, uh, that's not too far off. I mean, I don't know that they have the, the old uh, canvas bags specifically, but they are bringing in large quantities of cash. In fact, uh, Ms. Stanislaus said at this event uh, that these taxpayers were handing over, quote-unquote, boatloads of cash. And because it's all coming from marijuana businesses, apparently it has a strong odor associated with it. But they are they are bringing this stuff in, and it's, it's an issue because uh, the amount of cash makes not only the businesses a potential target for robbery, but also the uh, the staff that are handling it. And that is why the uh, state wanted to use this program to actually take it to a bank, which is more secure and which is set up to count and store this cash. Is a, It's a way to help protect both the pot seller, but really the, uh, the tax officials and the tax staff for these agencies. I really foresee this becoming a movie franchise. I'm thinking Ocean's 420. Yeah, that's a good one. It certainly could be a, a heist story. Uh, hopefully, though, we won't actually have any real-world basis for it. Uh, I've been reporting on this, like I said, for a little while, and uh, there have been some creative efforts by states to sort of think of how they might get around this. Uh, I've heard officials in California talk about trying to to encourage marijuana businesses to use kiosks that can sort of count and store the money uh, a little bit more safely. And uh, there's also been uh, some interest by states in creating maybe their own sort of state chartered banks. In fact, California had legislation earlier this year to do that, although it didn't succeed. Those would have been banks chartered by California that only operated in the state and didn't link up to the federal banking system. But uh, there wasn't support for that 
bill ultimately. The uh, one other thing that we've seen some states do, Alaska has done this, Washington state officials told me they've done this, is to just sort of try and securitize their facilities that are going to be dealing with these large cash payments. And that's involved, uh, again, sort of these old-timey, uh, you know, securitization strategies like putting in bulletproof glass and, and coming up with uh, security measures in order to be able to deal with this quantity of money that has to be physically delivered and physically counted and then moved. Notably, one of the bills in California that did pass this year involved creating sort of a permission for pot sellers to pay their taxes in cash, specifically recreational marijuana businesses, without having to pay a penalty to the state. Uh, there, there had been previous legislation to remove the penalty for medical sellers, but then recreational pot became legal. So the banking, the, the idea of creating state chartered banks, that didn't make it through, but creating an exemption to facilitate large cash payments without a penalty, that did succeed. So I think that's sort of an indicator of where we are right now. Uh, there are some banks that are doing business to some extent with marijuana sellers. And under the Obama administration, there was sort of a uh, guidance put out that kind of created uh, maybe a, a sort of a safe harbor for banks if they followed a number of strict rules. But the Trump administration, uh, particularly under former Attorney General Jeff Sessions, took a much uh, stricter line. And really, I don't think there's been much progress with respect to these pot sellers gaining access to the banking system. So we're likely to continue to see sort of interesting efforts by states to, to deal with an industry, sort of a unique industry that just is pre-modern when it comes to managing their finances and making payments to the state. Well, Paul, thank you for that update. Um, I guess now it makes sense that now that we've had our discussion about marijuana, I think we need to talk about tacos. Joining me now in the studio is State Tax Today legal reporter Jad Shamsadeen. Jad, what do you have for me? Hey, how's it going? Um, so I have a case that includes tacos and taxes. That's a um, that's a pretty good combination. I like both of those. Yeah, uh, two of my favorite subjects, actually. So basically, we have this restaurant chain owner in Washington. Uh, he owns a bunch of taco restaurants, I think six or seven around the Washington state area. And yeah, he was recently accused of uh, committing sales tax fraud to the tune of $5.6 million, which means he must have sold about $60 million worth of tacos in a four-year period, which is a lot of tacos. Hey, I'm just going through that in my head. Yeah, that's that's definitely a lot more tacos than I would have in a four-year period, but by a little bit at least. Uh, I mean, it's maybe the people in Washington love tacos, but it turns out that uh, so he was accused of using a sales tax suppression software, which is kind of popping up around the around the country. It's software used to uh, change up the point of sale systems that you can find in pretty much all the restaurants and bars to enter in what the individual is buying. But uh, they accused him of using software to kind of you know, essentially cook the books in that sense. And what turned out to be a huge case for the Washington uh, Attorney General's office really fizzled into nothing for them at the end of the day. So uh, like like the filling falling out of a taco? Pretty much. You know, when, when you're eating your burrito and half the food falls down, that's essentially what happened, except that it completely disappeared for them. You know, they charged him. They had a huge press release saying this is the biggest case in the state's history and probably in the country. And, you know, they hired uh, Mr. Salvador Sahagun was the owner's name. He hired a law firm and that kind of specializes in sales tax suppression software. And they essentially ran through the numbers and they 
talked to the AG's office that brought the case, and they kind of laid down all the facts that, you know, sometimes the software, which uh, is often run on Windows, can be corrupted by installing a printer or any kind of issues can corrupt the underlying data that the AG's office used to charge Mr. Sagahun with sales tax suppression, essentially. And they basically agreed to, in the end, charge him for owing $800 extra on a reporting error instead of the $5.6 million that he was initially charged with. So I'm not entirely sure if what happened in Washington, they're not being very forthcoming with uh, what exactly occurred. They didn't issue any press releases. I spoke with the uh, AG's office and the, uh, the Department of Revenue. The Department of Revenue said, you know, talk to the AG's office. They're the ones that brought the charges. And the, uh, the AG's office said, hey, we only brought the charges because the DOR is the one that told us to bring the charges. So, you know, something something occurred that you don't find in all states. I, I guess you put out that press release saying that you're going to get more than $5 million. It makes a lot less sense to put out the press release about the $800, I guess. You know, all he was doing was just selling tacos. Nothing wrong with that in the end. That is a noble profession. Jad, thanks for being here. Thank you. I'm joined in the studio now by Nathan Richmond, a legal reporter on Tax Notes Today. All right, I understand you have a dessert chorus for us. You stole my line. (laughs) Okay, so sometimes the most interesting cases have not yet been resolved. A few months ago, the Cheesecake Factory filed a petition challenging uh, the denial of um, part of its domestic production deduction. Now, for those of you who didn't pay close attention to what got cut by the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the domestic production deduction had been Section 199. It was part of the trade-off pay-fors that got cut, but for open years before 2018, it still can be a live controversy, and the domestic production deduction drew a lot of controversies, particularly around small behaviors, we'll call them. This is the sorts of things like uh, in a district court case called Dean, assembly of, quote, air quotes, gift towers, which were, you know, gift boxes where a company was taking the deduction for, here's my box of Godiva chocolates, here's my box of Toblerone, I'm going to put them into a stack, wrap them up, hey, deduction for the wrapping. So you've, you've manufactured a bow. and, and Well, you've manufactured yeah. from the two completed boxes of chocolate, a box of two boxes of chocolate. With a bow. <laughs> yeah. So... This has led to some really interesting uh, litigation. The other notable case that came out, which where, again, the taxpayer won like they won in Dean, was called Precision Dose, which was taking drugs that were ready for sale and repackaging them into single-dose packages. So you could buy one, you know, maybe a pre-filled cup of NyQuil or something like that. So in response to this sort of stuff, the IRS issues this directive where it says these six things are not... They're not qualified production activities, so they don't yield qualified production activities income or QPI. Cutting blank keys, mixing base paint, applying garnishments to cake that is not baked where sold, applying gas to expedite ripening of fruit, storing agricultural products to preserve their lifespan, and maintaining plants. Now, here comes Cheesecake Factory, which does a lot of manufacturing cake and selling it elsewhere. Well, it is a factory. It is. And they had part of their deduction denied for adding whipped cream and garnishments to cheesecake slices. Now, they did not challenge what the IRS said, this is not allowed. They said instead, we're getting no income from that. Or at best, we're getting 2 to 4% of our income from that, as opposed to the much larger amount that the IRS wanted. 
Though I do have to wonder if they were allowed to talk about Q-Pie for the Cheesecake Factory. I see what you did there. <laughs> and that's, of course, a still live case. Yeah, on that note, I think you should see yourself out. Nate, thanks for being here. That's it for Year End Collection Volume 2. Thank you for listening, and thank you for listening all year long. We'll be back in the new year with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com backslash products. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening, and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.